I've been away from you a long time. I never thought I'd miss you so. Somehow I feel your love is real. Near you I want to be. The birds are singing, it is song time. The banjo's drumming soft and low. I know that you yearn for me too. Swanee, you're calling me. Hello, welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll be looking at the the middle chapters of Sinclair Lewis's Babbitt, which was published in 1922. Uh, this was like his follow-up novel to Main Street, and it, um, in my view, it's a it's a better novel. It looks, uh, I think, our hero is a little bit more. Kind of relatable and some of the themes are a little bit more interesting uh, i had my complaints about main street that's it's not a bad book but uh i'm certainly enjoying this one a lot more it's a lot funnier and it's a lot more emotional actually i find the the emotional weight of this book a little bit uh you know, a little bit higher than that of, of babbitt or that of main street um i also like kind of its overall plot and its arc in the way that we're really dealing with someone facing a crisis of faith. We won't get fully to the crisis of faith, I think, till the, till the next episode, because that really is what the final third of the book is about. But here we see uh, our character, maybe we see the hints of this crisis of faith, because sometimes when people do face a crisis of faith, whether you know it's religion or some other thing, here for Babbitt, it's, it's kind of a certain vision of Americanism that he's doubling down on. Usually when people do that, they, uh, how do I want to say this? They, they might, yeah, they, when they're having a crisis of faith, they might like reinvest in that belief uh, more intently. Like the, someone who starts doubting their belief in Christianity, they might start going to church more and start trying to teach Sunday school and trying to reorient with that. Same way someone maybe having a crisis in a relationship may try to, to reinvest in that relationship. And that's what we see Babbitt doing in the middle part of the novel. We already see the hints of his discontent. Um, much of the first part of the book just deals with his uh, his family and his job, and and about most of it is set in one day. Um, and part of that is a part of that day is a decision between him and Paul Riesling, his friend, really his only really close friend in all of the town of Zenith, which is a fictional town that that Lewis created for this book. But we see he, uh, they decide to take a trip to Maine together to try to get away from it all and uh, try to have a more authentic life, so to speak, to get away from the conformity that embraces Zenith. In this sense, Main Street and Zenith are making a similar argument that there's just in the American small town, small city, there's just this overwhelming conformity. And most of America is plagued by this in his view, it seems, and you really can't get away from it. That's something Main Street, I think, did quite well for Babbitt it's also that's the thesis in a way that you can't get away from it but we get a much closer look I guess at Babbitt's attempts to escape that that life um, so they go on that trip to Maine and we don't spend much time with them but we know it has an effect on Babbitt because he later sneaks off to Maine to try to um, as part of his crisis of faith I guess but um, where we're gonna pick up today which is chapter 12 we see Babbitt returning to Zenith, and he does feel changed. Uh, he says, I'm committed to serenity now. His, 
he's he's never it's not until later in the book and it actually takes a woman to to kind of draw him away from his conventional life but you know the way he kind of approaches it here it's still very conventional it's still very cliche and that is i'm going to commit to serenity i'm going to make serenity the the center of my life and he commits to various hobbies i think he wants says he wants to take up baseball for instance um and he's uh, going to stop smoking, which is always kind of a silly. It's kind of a running joke in this book that every time he says he's going to quit smoking, he's like immediately lighting up another cigar. But he says he's going to commit to that, too. But he does try base uh, or he tries to try hobbies. And one, he tries his baseball. And it, it's, it's also dealt with very in a very humorous way because he's like baseball. That's a good American sport. It's something to get my mind off work and the family and to commit myself to. And it ends up being, it's also a very conventional hobby. I love baseball, of course, but um, the way it's presented here, it's not some radical change in his life. It's like, well, I'm going to collect baseball cards and I'm going to keep track of stats of all the teams and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go to the local baseball games and I'm going to root for the local team, all of that. And, and it lasts for a while. It's like all almost all of Babbitt's hobbies or fads they last for a little while and then within a few days or weeks uh, you know or usually within about a week he is distracted by other things or falls back to his conventionality it's like i keep having this image in my head that i get from tocqueville of this kind of everything's being sucked in towards the mean this irresistible force to to the to the middle to what's ever conventional, what's ever practical, what's ever accepted by society. And you don't want to move away from that at all. Like to move away from that is, is something kind of fearful. Um, even his like of ba- his love of baseball is something that only can sustain him for a little while. And he's immediately uh, drawn to other things. Um, and one of those things that he does get drawn into quite seriously here is boosterism. This is a theme that... Uh, Lewis was interested in in Main Street. He spends a few chapters on it in that book, but here it's a much bigger part of the book. And boosterism essentially is this idea that we will promote these small towns, get people to move there, and try to make these smaller towns great cities, whether it's through some kind of urban development. It, and ultimately, I think what Lewis's point is in this is that it's a real estate scam. It's, it's kind of based on speculation in, the way, in a way. People buy up land cheap in small towns or rural areas, boost them, get people to move there. And as the property values go up, they, they make a bunch of money. And then the ultimate fate of the town isn't their interest. Now, I don't want to say that that's Babbitt's point of view. Babbitt seems to believe in it. He being a real estate guy, though, um, and he's not the most corrupt real estate guy, although he's not totally honest uh, with all his dealings. He's, he does believe in Zenith in a way. I think his belief is authentic. And, I, and that's why I talk about his crisis of belief. It's not, he's not a fake person. Everything he embraces, he does so earnestly. It's just uh, the context of it is, is kind of what is, is what is a corrupt facade. But he gets really into um, boosterism. He joins this organization that's committed to this. And and there's all kinds of groups that are somewhat associated with boosterism. The Chambers of Commerce, of course, employers organizations, but even things like the Elks Club and the Lions Club and all these different urban organizations. It's part of the progressive era that uh, we need to know about. 
at least be aware of, you know, the is this attempt in cities to create kind of new institutions of community. And part of that are all these clubs that pop up, really middle class clubs, ladies clubs, gentlemen's clubs. And they're they might be involved in like charity or other kind of civic projects. They're involved in boosterism. They might be, you know, challenging like more radical ideas. They kind of are very American in their belief, right? You go to you, you still see remnants of these institutions in American cities, of course. Um, and and Babbitt becomes like a you know he he's given he's given like a speech to give at in this and we'll see that speech a little bit later it's it's really wonderful there's a whole chapter that's just devoted to one of babbitt's speeches um but ultimately you know he's he's really focused on this boosterism stuff and he even goes to a convention um and there's these celebrations and entertainment it's a way for for babbitt to kind of get out of the house and hang out with other men and and talk their banal talk but it's meaningful to babbitt it's it's it is something that allows him to kind of reinvest in his in his, um, you know, in his community and, and make him feel he's he's doing something with his life because he is feeling some ennui. Not as overtly as Paul Riesling, his friend is, who's much more open about this ennui, but, but Babbitt's more, I guess, uh, it, it's deeper in him and it's, it, it's harder for it to come to the surface in his case. Now, in, I think it's chapter 14, we see Babbitt's speech and this is all involved with an election campaign. So, there's basically two candidates running for for mayor. One is a uh, more kind of a populist socialist uh, candidate, at least that's how he's framed. It turns out he's more of a conventional liberal, but the way he's presented is basically a, a red in the book. So there's like red, a lot of red baiting and anti-communism running through this part of the novel, too. But Babbitt's called to give a speech for the other guy. Now, the guy who is more socialistic or at least more progressive in his views, was Babbitt's classmate and, and friend back in college, or at least an acquaintance back in college. But Babbitt chooses the other side in his, in his cam campaigning, and he gives this really long speech that runs for like 10 pages. It's like almost a whole chapter. Um, and through this, Babbitt becomes known as a pretty, uh, pretty good orator, a pretty impressive orator. And he gives this long speech on the virtues of middle america which is it, it's just beautiful it's just it's funny it's uh well constructed and i think sinclair lewis does the right thing of just giving us the whole speech giving us it word for word um, and you could just pick up any section of this and get a taste of what he's talking about but here this is a good one because because it, it is politically reactionary in its outcome the, the speech but it, I think it's rooted in his belief in, in this idea of Zenith, in this idea of the American small town. Uh, quote, uh, in politics and religion, this sane civilization is the canniest man on earth. And in the arts, he invariably has the natural taste, which makes him pick out the best every time. In no country in the world will you find so many reproductions of the old masters and so many well-known painters on the parlor walls as in these United States. No country has anything like our number of phonographs with not only dance records, but comics, but also the best operas such as Verde rendered by the world's highest paid singers. In other countries, art and literature are left to the lot of shabby bums living in attics and feeding on booze and spaghetti. But in America, the successful writer or picture painter is indistinguishable from any other decent businessman. And I, for one, am only too glad that the men 
that the man who has the rare skill to season his message with interesting reading manner and who shows both purpose and pep in handling his literary wares has a chance to drag down his 50,000 bucks a year to mingle with the business executives on terms of perfect equality and to show as big a house and a swell a car as any captain of industry. But mind you, it's the appreciation of the regular guy who I've been depicting, which has made this possible. And so you gotta hand him so much credit as to the authors themselves. But finally, but most importantly, our standardized citizen, even if he's a bachelor, is a lover of the little one, end quote. And I wanna leave this because later on, this is gonna be tested. It's gonna be tested in a strike that happens in Zenith where the ideology of business and kind of a happy American civilization is going to be tested when strikers say, no, this doesn't apply to us. You think it does, but it doesn't. We're actually the marginalized. We're actually outside of this system that you're promoting and promoting on our behalf and claiming to be ours. Um, so, however, while these gives him stuff to do and it gives him a bit of an identity, none of this really leads to any social advancement. And so that's part of what Babbitt gets into in this part of the book, right around the middle point of this book. He starts to say, he starts to think of how can I become more, how can I advance myself in society? And the way to do that is through being chummy with the, the higher ups, right? The people of more wealth and power and position. And, you know, he's, he's not totally unknown in Zenith, but he's still like a, a real estate broker, essentially a glorified one, small business owner. He says the right things. He gets some fame from this speech, but he's not really getting his, I guess his reputation. At, he's not getting, it's not translated into social credit in the sense of his relations and his friendships and stuff. So he tries this with a, well, I think it goes to alumni, like a, like a college alumni dinner. And it's kind of tied to boosterism. It was like one of these organizations promoted the, the alumni dinner. And George Babbitt goes there for social outreach. He's trying to make connections. And he ends up meeting this guy, the, Mc, Mc, what are they, the McClellys. And he gets them to agree to go to dinner. Now, this is like Babbitt stepping up. This is Babbitt trying to move up the social hierarchy in relations by meeting someone who's considered, who's like a social better than his. And... He gets there only through kind of promising like insider trading deals. This is why I said before, Babbitt's sometimes a little shady. He sort of hints and winks at, oh, I can give you a good deal on some kind of real estate or a good price or something. So he promises like insider real estate information if he goes to this, just comes over for dinner. And they do, but it's kind of embarrassing and awkward. It even makes his wife cry. It's that kind of awkward of a meeting. So poor Babbitt. Doesn't get quite what he wants. Now, in the, interestingly, in the same chapter, he's approached by this guy, Ed Overbrook, who's a failure from college, kind of more of a bum. It's another college classmate but of his, but someone who kind of didn't move up in society after college, who is below Babbitt. And he invites Babbitt to dinner, and this also sort of goes badly. So it's it's like such a great metaphor for like, Babbitt's middlingness, like he's stuck in the middle. He really can't be brought down too much by this overlook, over, overbrook, overlook, overbrook. 
and he can't be really brought up by by Mary, by going up. Either way, he's out of place. He's like stickly in the middle, and he can't escape that exact middle. Um, now he's going to try, and it's going to take some external pressures, alcohol, and a woman to get him to fully try to escape. But not like a crisis in his personal life too, as we'll see. But anyways, as we see, Babbitt finds out he's just not going to be accepted. Um, he was trying to become a prominent citizen. He throws himself into society. He tries to make social connections, but he can't. And so another place he goes to then is his church. He's, he's, his religion is kind of lame. It's just like his religion, even Lewis says it at some point, that his religion is Americanism. But if you were to dig deeper, it's like just bland, whatever, Presbyterianism, whatever the, the leader of the Presbyterian church says he should believe is what he'll believe. But he's still connected to this church. So he does go and, and he gets kind of sucked into the Sunday school, the local Sunday school. And he's like, okay, I'll do this. And he's not like becoming a Sunday school teacher, but he is in the program and he kind of sees maybe the church can become a community center. Maybe the church can be a bastion of his social credit. Um, he gets bored with Sunday school because it is just sort of, it is boring, <laughs> frankly. Um, but he gets bored with social studies work, but he says maybe it can be like a, a project to expand the, the Sunday school. Um, and he actually was reading a book. He, at one point, Babbitt's reading a book about religion. And he what he liked about it was its technical kind of bureaucratic sort of capitalistic language. And he's like, oh, I get this. This is speaking my language. And he's like, oh, maybe there's something to this religion thing. And and he's like, I'm going to commit to Sunday school. And I'm going to try to make it the best Sunday school in, in Zenith or whatever. And so that's what he does. And he actually seeks out this, like, the rich guy in town, this, uh, what's his name, Ethorn. He, he meets this guy, Ethorn, who's like, he's kind of interesting because he's someone who's able to escape this convention, conventionality of society that plagues Babbitt. Whether it plagues him or not, I don't know. It's, he's, he's somewhat conscious of it, I think. I think Babbitt knows he's somewhat acting a role. But this guy doesn't have to because he's super rich. So he can just kind of escape it. it. It's it's great. And we have something that's almost like you'd recognize from a Lovecraft story where he goes to this town and it's kind of almost a, a witnessing of Zenith's history and past through the architecture, which is something like Lovecraft does a lot. But the elite are not bound by the rules of society in quite the same way. And the super poor aren't, right? It's the middle class that are bound by these rules. Um, but anyways, he talks to this guy about like sponsoring the Sunday school. And he says, well, one thing we can do is like have cash rewards for, you know, for people coming to Sunday school and maybe make it like a sales thing. Like if you bring three kids to Sunday school next next week, you'll get a little bit of you'll get a buck or you'll get a dollar. And he even says we need to not only do that, we need to like hire a paid press agent who's going to pimp uh, good stories about uh about the Sunday, Presbyterian Sunday School in the newspaper. So people are going to think, oh, this is a place where I want to send my kid. Um, he even says at one point, I think he tries to do this, where I even create a military, almost military ranks uh, in the in the Sunday School. It's all very bureaucratic and industrial, and it fits Babbitt's mind. 
And this guy kind of goes for it. He's like, fine, and gives him some money to do this. And he ends up hiring this guy as a press agent. And it actually sort of works because the people of Zenith are sort of stupid and banal. And they read the newspaper and it talks good things about the Sunday school. And they go along with it. So I, these, these chapters are really actually quite a lot of fun. Um, now, there's some like shady stuff going on towards the end of the section I want to talk about. I think the big ideas here are already kind of established, but um, there are kind of some... You see his facade breaking down a little bit um, in these chapters as well. For instance, one is dealing with like Ted, his son, and, and Babbitt's relationship that he's sort of dating, Ted's dating this girl Eunice and he doesn't like her very much. Ted's grades are slipping and, you know, Babbitt intervenes in this relationship, but it ends up ruining his own social relationship with Eunice's parents, the Littlefields, who are also someone he, he wants to be close to. But, um, and he starts after like, experiencing this embarrassment and kind of fucking this up, he, he actually says, oh, I really have this mechanical life. He uses this language of a mechanical life and he's not happy with, with where he is in, in, in this respect. He thinks his life really is sort of in a dead end. He, he's starting to be a little more open about his ennui, even in his internal monologue. You know, that was like, like his friend Paul was always more open about it, but Babbitt always kind of suppressed it even in his monologues. But here we see him beginning to express his discontent a little more openly. Um, we also find in these chapters that uh, there's some like exploitation of boosterism that he's privy to and participating in. So it's not all he's not the fully honest person that he wants to present himself as. For instance, he uses insider info to extort money from the street from a streetcar company that's trying to expand and buy land. And he's like, well, you know, I'm able to, basically he exploits the real estate market to get that get that money uh, or to get some extra money out of them. And it's a, really an exploitation of boosterism in a way because boosterism is all based on speculation and land prices and getting those land prices up, up, up so people can sell at higher rates and, and make out like bandits. And that's what he basically does to this uh, this company. Street Is it Streetcar? Street Tractor, I think. Street Tractor Company, I think it's called. Street Traction, the Zenith Street Traction Company that's making car repair shops throughout Zenith. But he basically just screws them over with, uh, with bad real estate deals. Um, so he's not entirely immune from the corruption that's here. And there's a, certainly there's the, the way this society is presented in its reality, which is, I think, pretty corrupt. And this is something Main Street got really into, but I, I think at a more personal level maybe more into like the gaze and the, the, the spying of, of eyes and the kind of the cool things neighbors can say to one another. It's really good at that. This gets right to it and says basically it's criminal and the, the way it behaves sometimes. So, um, so Babbitt and Ted eventually take a trip to Chicago. And I think, you know, there's this weird idea that Babbitt has that somehow trips are going to like revitalize his life. And I think people might still have this. Some people might really believe this, that, oh, if I can only get away and I can enjoy life a little bit, I can uh, escape the burden of, of my life. I can, I'll come back rejuvenated. I'll have like a, 
like a new perspective on things. I don't really think that works out too often. Um, I'm not a big fan of travel. If I ever do the, if I ever do the Mark Twain series, I'll say a lot more about travel because because travel is a big part of his writing. But you you kind of, I, I think it's kind of a false experience. Um, but I understand how people believe it's something that wakes them up or or gives them a new perspective. And I'm not sure it really does. I think it's a, it's it, it's almost like a mental trick. But um, they do take a trip. Now, he has these drinks with this, uh, like, British knight, Sir Gerald Dolk. Um, and this, it's really fascinating how with this foreign elite aristocrat, he's able to, like, acknowledge his ennui over life. Um, but during this uh, meeting, while he's in Chicago, he sees Paul Riesling with a woman. And this woman is not his wife. Now, it's pretty well known by this point that Paul Riesling is having affairs. I think it's something Babbitt seemed to know, but he didn't really have the evidence in front of him. Now he does. So he actually approaches Paul Riesling about this and criticizes him for his affairs. But what does Babbitt do? Well, he doesn't want to sacrifice his social network. So what he does is he eventually covers for Paul with his wife, going so far as to like forging or like writing a fake uh, telegram or something where, or a postcard where he says, oh, I ran into your, your, your husband. And he was totally good. He didn't have, he certainly didn't have any woman with him in his hotel room. He kind of writes that kind of letter. And then later when he goes back, he meets with her and she kind of questions him. And he, his wife's name Zila. And he, he basically defends Paul entirely. But he also says, you know, you should be nicer to Paul and, and, and maybe work on your marriage. That old canard of you got to work on your marriage, right? Because marriage is hard work. That old bourgeois nonsense. He says, be nicer to Paul. Um, but Paul is still upset with Zila. And, and I think when Paul finally comes back, him and Babbitt have a little conversation, and we see Paul still upset with Zila's kind of nagging and, and you know, cramping his style or whatever. Now, in the, now we get to, like, where the real crisis in Babbitt's, um, at least is exposed. His real crisis is exposed. It's going to go through, it's going to take him a while to finally rip off that bandage of, of conventionality and, and move on to try to move on to something else. But, but this, what happens, it's a chapter 21. What happens here is a pretty dramatic change for him. Now he becomes vice president of the booster club. So he's, is slowly kind of moving up in society in various ways. But um, more importantly for the story is Paul's arrested for shooting Zila, like actually shooting her. Um, and when George talks to her, talks to him, I mean. He claims that he's just snapped at Zila's constant nagging. Um, and he eventually goes to, he's sent to jail, of course, after shooting his wife. His wife doesn't die. It's not clear she would. I mean, it could have been a murder case, but it wasn't. It was like, a it became attempted murder because she doesn't die. Um, but she is horribly injured by this. And, and because now Zila can witness it forces paul to like plead guilty so he has to basically plead guilty to this crime and he's given three years in prison as a result and babbitt realizes like you realize here how important paul was to his social network it's like his only real friend 
that he really trusted and believed in because he feels with Paul gone, life is meaningless. Uh, that's at least what his internal monologue tells us. And I think that tells us how much Paul means to him as a friend, as someone who can maybe uh, ground him in something beyond uh, the facade he has to put up to, to live his life in Zenith. Um, so that takes us to the last part of the novel, which I'll cover in the next episode, which deals with his different ways of trying to escape um, the life he's kind of built for himself. And then his return to the faith. What, what does it take to return him to his faith? Um, that's the big question, I guess, of, of the book. Um, so anyways, great novel, a lot of fun, um, really interesting characters and a pretty compelling context and story. And, and I'm loving it. I, there's not much I dislike about Babbitt, to be honest. I, there's a lot about Main Street that I found kind of tedious, but I'm not feeling that way with, with Babbitt at all. So um, a lot to enjoy here. So anyways, um, I'll leave you with that. Uh, let me know if you have any thoughts on Babbitt. Uh, send me a message. You can write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, and I'll see you next time as I finish up my look at Sinclair Lewis. As I said before, I probably won't get back to him unless Library of America publishes another collection of his novels. There's plenty more that they could collect, but so, so far they only have the two books, um, the two volumes. And I'm debating whether to go back to the Civil War series finish that up or uh, talk about Ben Franklin. Um, I'm thinking about doing some brain for Ben Franklin, but we'll see. Um, I still haven't made up my mind yet, um, but I'll see you soon. I'll be back shortly with, um, with my final thoughts on that. Thanks for Swanee, how I love you, how I love you, my dear old Swanee. I'd give the world to be among the folks in D-I-X, I even know my mammy's waiting for me, praying for me down by the Swanee. The folks up north won't see me no more when I get to that Swanee.